So this morning, let's prepare our hearts for the reading of God's word. It's from Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. And this is Jesus speaking to us. Judge not that you not be judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. The word of the Lord. Good morning. It's like we have a little bit of a larger group today. That's good to see. Um, I was told to make sure I look at my clock so I don't go over an hour and a half. <laughs> little joke. <laughs> All right. Um, I mentioned to you last week on that message that it was really more t- as much towards myself as it was towards anyone else, and I certainly think that's true of this one as well. It strikes me that this whole problem of judging people is one of our most common failings. And certainly, the more things get difficult in our country, certainly the easier it is to do. So I thought it might be appropriate to say a few things about this issue of judging people. I think that it is one of our most common failings, and I think we're all guilty of it at one time or another. I certainly know that I am. And the harder things get, the easier it is to judge. And so much of the turmoil that goes on on this issue really comes down to this. People are judging one another, and they're doing it with little or no basis at all. So the subject passage, which of course is from the Sermon on the Mount, I think is often misunderstood. I observe that people seem to come to quick assumptions about it, but I suggest there's more to it than that. The first thing that we ought to ask is what is meant by the words to judge. And the second thing to ask is what the Lord meant when he said that we would be judged in the same way that we judged others. Now, the Greek word which is translated judge in this context is the word krino. Vine says that it primarily denotes to separate, select, choose, or to determine, or to pronounce judgment. But having said that, he points out that the word is used in the New Testament in nine different ways. We're not going to go through them this morning. And if that were not enough, there are many variations of the Greek word in the New Testament with even more complex meanings. But the thing that strikes me the most about the meaning of the word judge in this context is that it contains a kind of dismissal. Once we have pronounced judgment upon someone, then we tend to dismiss them as if we had no further responsibility towards them. Many people assume <clears throat> excuse me, that Jesus meant that God would judge us in the same way that we judge others. And there are many commentators who say that. But the alternative is that Jesus meant that other people would judge us in the same way that we judge them. And there are commentators who take that point of view. I think that on certain levels, both are true. 
I certainly observe, and I'm sure you do as well, that if I speak harshly and in a judgmental manner towards someone, they generally do not respond by saying, Oh, thank you very much. You've really helped me today. No, more often than not, what they do is they return the same judgment upon me. Usually they take it up a notch. Oh, we're so very sophisticated. If we say, you are a big fat ninny, what's the response going to be? Oh, yeah? Well, you're an even bigger and fatter ninny. So sophisticated. And this seems to dominate much of the debate which is going on today in our world. It looks that way to me. In this sense, we will be judged by others in the same way that we judge them, you see. That's simply human nature. Unfortunately, this process can and does lead to extremes. Wars have been fought over nothing more than this. The opposite, of course, also appears to be common, at least in relationships. It's probably not true where some political agenda is involved. But if we take the insult and respond with love and compassion, the situation is generally diffused, and the argument stops immediately. I remember telling my children when they were little, do you want to know how to stop an argument? And they would say, no. How do you stop an argument? And I would say, stop arguing. <laughs> if, this is, I believe, one of the um, primary reasons why Jesus also told us in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew five thirty-nine to 42, if someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the, also, the other also, And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. There is more in that passage than this. But I think it does at least stand for the proposition that to end an argument, we must be willing to let the other person have the last word, which is often a very difficult thing to do. It's also important to remember, I think, that Jesus is the appointed judge. He spoke of this many times. We are not called to be judges of other people. We are called to love them and to serve them and to share the gospel with them. And Jesus never just judged and dismissed people in this earthly life. His diagnosis was entirely different. We read in Matthew chapter 9 that when Jesus saw the crowds... He had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. In other words, Jesus saw that the evil one was behind it and not the people themselves. It is the evil one who deceives people into believing all kinds of monstrous things. And Jesus also said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. So go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but to call sinners. So the Lord also saw people as being sick and needing healing. Now, when it comes to the question of how God judges us, that is more interesting. But before we look at what Scripture says about it, let's consider what judgment actually is. Most people because most people don't spend their lives in courtrooms, don't seem to understand what judgment is all about. We in the judicial system take the issue of judgment extremely seriously. 
There are two separate elements of judgment. The first is the determination of the facts. This is why we try cases so carefully. It's primarily an attempt to determine what the facts are. And it's why the rules of evidence are so complex and the presentation of evidence is so difficult. It's why many witnesses are called and why they are carefully cross-examined. It is a slow and tedious process. It is not like you see on television. It isn't over in an hour. It can take days and often does. That means that the judge at the conclusion literally says, that is to say, he makes a finding of fact, which means that he literally says, based upon the evidence which I have heard today, I find the following facts to be true. And then he carefully lists what those facts are. Note that this finding of fact is based upon the evidence which is actually presented. Nobody thinks that all possible evidence has ever been presented. It never is. It never can be. Judges and juries don't have the ability to determine ultimate truth. All they can do is rule the best they can on what evidence has been before them. And if this is true, how ridiculous it is when we make snap judgments. We tend to make them upon almost no evidence whatsoever. That is what we by nature tend to do. The second element of judgment is the application of law to the findings of fact. That is, what is the law as it relates both to the evidence presented and the elements of the case which the law says must be considered by the judge? And the arguments and the interpretations of what the law is are often as difficult or more difficult than determining what the facts are. So again, why do we jump to conclusions about facts but also jump to conclusions that we even know what the law is. Yet we do it so often, and we do it so easily. It should be clear to us, and I hope that it is, that God and only God is capable of knowing what the facts really are. And God and only God knows exactly what the law really is. We don't. This is why Jesus said so very categorically, don't do it. Just don't do it. Don't judge other people. People are incredibly complex. Just look at yourself. We believe and do contradictory things all the time. Our motives are extremely complex and are based upon unique life experiences. And we are constantly changing. We are not what we were yesterday and we were not what we will be tomorrow. Only God knows all of, all of this about any one of us or any political or historical figure or anyone we come in contact to, with during the course of the day. For, as for us, it's a question of how we will look upon people. Will we look at them with a judgmental and dismissive attitude? Or will we have the spiritual insight to see that they are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd? Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, We must learn to regard people less in light of what they do or omit to do and more in the light of what they suffer. There are many types of suffering, and often we do bring it upon ourselves. But that does not mean that the suffering is not real. If we are going to have the kind of love and compassion which Jesus demonstrated for us, then it is the suffering we should respond to and not the wrong or stupid things which people say or do. Jesus said that what we should be doing 
is looking at the log in our own eyes. Now, please notice that he speaks first of noticing the log, and only then does he speak of removing it. So first, we must be able to see reality. We must actually notice the things that are wrong in our own lives. Now, what does that mean? Does it mean that we're really that much worse? No, I don't think so. It means that this should be the way we think. It should be our attitude. We should think, oh God, I have this great log in my eye. I know I cannot possibly judge anyone else over anything. Let me look squarely at the log in my own eye. That will take a lifetime to try to deal with. And you look at the words that Jesus said about anyone who does not have that attitude. He said, you hypocrite. Wow, that's tough language. And all of us, I think, should hear this as if it were spoken directly to us. But let me say that there is also much scripture telling us to make judgments about things, about right and wrong behavior, about wise and foolish behavior. You know, there was a time when the word discrimination was a good thing and was never used to refer to racial prejudice. A well-educated and wise person was called discriminating because he could discriminate between any number of things correctly and wisely. So let's not confuse the two issues. We're not to judge people, but we are to make many types of judgments about what is right and wrong in thoughts, attitudes, behaviors, and actions. And the Apostle John even goes so far as to tell us to test every spirit to see whether or not they are from God. Now this, I believe, is why Jesus in this passage, in the same context as the discussion of judgment, tells us not to throw our pearls before pigs. You see, that is discrimination in the best sense of the word. That is right judgment. So he includes this in the passage. It means that most people cannot understand the knowledge and wisdom of God, and if we tell them more than they are capable of understanding, we'll just get trampled. We must choose our words carefully and not just say whatever comes to mind or what we would say to one another. We cannot assume that people know things which they, in fact, do not know. Also, Scripture teaches us that people are blind and under the influence of the evil one and his lies, unless and until God opens their eyes and reveals the truth to them. A principle which I think is important is this. Only tell someone what they are receptive enough to hear, and that might not be very much. Anything more than that will just be trampled. You see, whenever we judge the person, as I said, we are dismissing them. We are saying, I find you to be a so-and-so, and therefore I have nothing to do with you. How is that consistent with our call to love our neighbors as ourselves? Now, there are two entirely different types of judgment by God. The first is the great and terrible day of the Lord, when he will return and separate the saved from the unsaved. I say great and terrible because that is what it will be. But that's not what I want to talk about. Instead, let's consider briefly the other kind of judgment, and that is the judgment of believers. Many think that there is no such thing, but there is. However, it's a totally different type of judgment. It does not involve condemnation or punishment, 
because, as we know, Jesus paid the price for us. It's more of a discrimination, perhaps, than it is a judgment. It's more of an evaluation. A significant number of people who have had near-death experiences, people in different times and places who could not have known what each other had said, have described a scene before they actually entered heaven itself in which Jesus himself sensitively and compassionately but pointedly went over everything they ever did in their lives. This reminds me of the woman at the well and how Jesus told her everything she had ever done. I don't know if there's any accuracy to that picture or not, but I do know that Scripture says we will be judged in some sense. Consider this verse from 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17. Listen to these words. And remember that they were written to believers. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear during the time of your exile. The phrase, the time of your exile, refers to our time here on earth. But it seems clear that Peter is speaking of a judgment which occurs after the time of our exile, in other words, in heaven. Peter tells us that it is according to our deeds. That is what we have and have not done on earth. And he tells us it is impartial. He also tells us that it's the judgment of a father. Also, that is a reason for us to conduct ourselves with fear at this time. This also reminds me of the story of the woman who was taken in the act of adultery and was about to be stoned. You recall that Jesus said, let he who is without sin throw the first stone, and that it was the oldest people who first dropped their stones and walked away in silence. And the older I get, the more I understand that. I tend not to remember the things that I did right. I assume there must have been some somewhere. But I remember all too clearly the things I've done wrong. And I'm not sure that I really look forward to hearing what the Lord has to tell me about them. It not not to be surprising that the people who show up in angry mobs tend to be young people who know who think they know far more than they actually do. Now I've heard many people say that when God saves that when God saves us, He forgets our sins. I don't know where that idea came from, but it really doesn't make any sense. He forgives our sin. He has Himself paid the price for our sin. He shows abundant mercy and grace and loves us deeply. And in this sense, he has removed our sins as the East is from the West. But forget? How can the omniscient God forget anything? We're not told much about this judgment of believers, as God by his Spirit did not consider it something which we need to be told. But there is a good deal of Scripture on the subject of crowns, which we will receive in heaven. And this, I think, is an interesting picture into what this judgment or evaluation will be like. In the Greco-Roman culture, it was well understood that crowns were given as a sign of honor to those who won the race. Competition in races was important in that culture as it is in our own. And there are many types of races. The Apostle Paul frequently used the race analogy to describe our lives here on earth. In our culture, only the winner gets a prize, unless we're talking about t-ball, where everybody gets a trophy. Whoever comes in second is usually forgotten. But it will not be so in heaven. 
We are told that Jesus bears the ultimate crown. So it appears that this is one more example of our oneness with him. We are told that he is crowned with glory and honor. And in heaven there is a golden crown upon his head. In 1 Corinthians 9.25, Paul says that we run the race of life to gain an imperishable wreath, which is a reference to our inheritance in heaven. In Greek races, the wreath was placed upon the head of the winner. It was a type of crown. In 1 Thessalonians 1.19, Paul says that the very believers whom he has served are his crown. These are his words. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and crown. So it appears that people are our crown. And in other places, Paul calls this a crown of righteousness. If that is so, then I must ask myself what I have done for others that the Lord himself would consider worthy of transforming into a crown. In 2 Timothy 4.8, Paul wrote, Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, there's judgment in heaven again, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but to all who have loved his appearing. This seems to describe something of an award ceremony. Peter expresses the same idea when he said in 1 Peter 5, 4, And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. We like to think that all these crowns will be the same. But I do not think so. If Paul, who accomplished more for the Lord than just about anyone else I can think of, speaks of the people he led to the Lord and taught as being his crown, do we really think that the rest of us will receive the same crown that Paul receives? And how could Peter's warning make any sense if that were so? Jesus himself said this to two of the seven churches spoken to specifically in the book of Revelation. To the church in Smyrna, he said, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you in prison, that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. To the church in Philadelphia, he says, Hold fast that which you have, that no one may seize your crown. In this context, the crown of life means that this will be our real life. Our lives here are merely a a shadow. And, of course, it's interesting that we're also told in Revelation that having received these crowns, we will throw them at the feet of Jesus as an act of worship. Now, I mentioned to you last week that when I was young, I was a runner, and I competed in track and field and sprinting in both high school and college. When I ran the uh, intramural track meets at the University of Maryland, when I won a race, they gave me a little gold turtle. You know, Maryland Terrapins, fear the turtle. And if I came in second, I got a little silver turtle. I never did come in third, so I don't know if they gave out bronze turtles. (laughs) Somewhere in my basement, I have a box of these things. I don't exactly put them on the mantle because, I mean, seriously, want to see my turtles? (laughs) But I believe that there is something better than golden turtles awaiting for me in heaven and for you also. So in summary, 
I must not judge others. They have a judge, and it is not me. But I must discriminate carefully about many things during the time of my exile. There waits for me a crown of life, and this crown may be gold or silver or something else, but will in some way involve the level and type of my service to others during this lifetime. I know that I'll never measure up to what the Lord desires from me. But I also know that by his grace and mercy, there is a crown waiting for me. I think I would be blessed indeed just to get an honorable mention. But I don't think that's the way the Lord sees it. So let's keep our eyes on the prize. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, there is so much about this that we don't really understand. We do understand that you tell us categorically not to judge other people. You tell us to love other people. You tell us to see them correctly as people who are harassed by the evil one and to respond to them with love and compassion and with testimony to your gospel. You also tell us that you care deeply about the lives that we live here on this earth and that you will take all of that into account when we appear before you. You tell us that you will award to us crowns Because we are your saints. We are your children. We are the ones for whom you died. We are the ones that you have graciously bestowed your mercy and your grace upon us. Yet, Lord, let us think only of how we may honor you by the lives that we live. So that when you look at us, you will see that we have been faithful servants. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.